This is Giant. I got your visual. Come in, Mike. I'm standing by for you. Roger. I'll be there in a couple of mics. In the meantime, get them out. You are listening to the Men Among Men Stories Podcast, Episode 5, hosted by me, Hank, and Bindu. Eh? A literal storm of shrapnel was breaking over it. Showers of bullets, splinters, and fuses whistled through the air, swept through the branches of the orchard trees in the garden wilderness, and crashed against what remained of the ruined walls. I found Sievers and Vogel, both officers of my company, sitting in a dugout in one of the gardens. They had made a blazing fire and were bending over the flames to counteract the effects of the chlorine. I kept them company and did likewise until the bombardment slackened and then went on to the front line by Number 6 communication trench. As I walked along, I saw numbers of small beasts lying dead on the bottom of the trench, killed by the chlorine, and I thought as I saw them, another barrage will come down any moment. If you go fooling about like this, you'll find yourselves caught like a mouse in a trap. Nevertheless, I went on with the utmost unconcern. As it turned out, I was caught in a fresh and even wilder outburst just 50 meters from the company dugout. It seemed quite out of the question to pass even the short length of trench without being hit. By good luck, I saw a little shelter that had been dug out in the side of the trench for for dispatch riders. It was only the width of three dugout frames. Not much, but always something. So there I crouched and let the storm go over me. That was an excerpt from the 1929 translation, the original translation of Ernst Younger's The Storm of Steel, his Great War memoir. And this is actually the second part of our series looking at different Great War memoirs. The the first one we looked at last podcast was And We Go On by Will R. Bird, which was basically just published a year later. If you haven't listened to that podcast, we are going to be making a lot of reference back to that one, so please check that out. That was episode four, Will Our Birds, and we go on. As we mentioned in that previous podcast, there's a lot of similarities between these authors, as well as differences. There's some huge differences Mm -hmm. between these two men, obviously. The first one, right off the bat, is Younger's an officer. He spends most of the war as an officer. And also, he does fight in most of the war, whereas Will R. Bird's kind of in the, there in the second half. His trench warfare is already developed, and he spends a large part of the war as a private, as, a, as the junior most soldier in the unit, in terms of the rank structure. And he only spends kind of the last, I would say, maybe quarter of the book as a lance corporal, so as a, as a junior NCO of sorts before he requested demotion back to private at the end. Whereas Ernst Younger ends the war with the highest decoration, the Blue Max, the Porlemerite, given to him basically by the Kaiser, which is a pretty big deal. It's the, it's the highest combat decoration for German forces in the Great War. Will Arbert does receive commendations. He receives the military medal for his actions during the last 100 days of the war as well. Uh, but it certainly isn't no Blue Max. So these guys are kind of different. Again, if you haven't listened to the previous podcast, please do, because we're going to be making a lot of reference back to it. It's it's just uh, a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. It's two, two ways that this war was fought, two types of people that fought in it. 
While Will R. Bird is very much your everyman, and of course he is a Canadian, Ernest Younger comes from a very different background. He's a Prussian-German, and is sort of raised with the ideas and warrior traditions, I guess you would say, of that culture, which is... There are very similar ideas of duty and honor on the Canadian side, of course, but... Yeah, a little different than a kid on the Canadian prairies playing hockey. Yeah, Ernest Younger has a very different... It's Ernst, right? Ernst. 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 Apologies Ernst. for our anglicized vernacular and pronunciation of things. We are not proficient in very many languages, and we're barely proficient in the English language, so we <laughs> yeah. might make pronunciation errors to this podcast. We apologize in advance. Yes, Ernst Younger is yes raised in a far more militaristic culture, maybe you could say. Definitely. And one which stresses duty and honor to the state and to one's nation. Not that those things are lacking on the Entente side, of course, but I'd say they're emphasized more to an extent in the German Empire. Yeah, that's the context behind this entire book, because it's a very different book for... Well, it's not only is it a different book than Will R. Bird's book, but it's a very different perspective than what we're familiar with today in the Western world, in the Western secular world, and even in, in like religious circles. I think there's very, very few... I would say this culture's not, not even rare. It's gone. This culture doesn't exist anymore anywhere in the world because it's a... It's, I don't know, you, maybe you disagree. Well, uh, the closest I would say you have to it is, and th this is not my personal recognition, this is actually written by a British intellectual named Peter Hitchens, who said that the closest thing th to this is the monuments in Britain and, interestingly enough, the, the Soviet Union, both around the first and m more with the Soviets, the Second World War, that there's kind of a, he describes almost sort of, and it's dying out now, but for many years after the Second World War, there was this kind of almost sort of honoring of the dead that took part, that was an almost religious ritual, as he describes it. And again, I'm not making judgments on that I, either way, but... but as, a, as a society, though, I don't think a society like that exists. No, it does not anymore. That's on its way out. Even, even if you look at a a theocratic state, like the Islamic state, right, for mm -hmm. example, where they were arguably very militarized. It was for very, very different reasons. The reasons for why the German Empire was the way it was in 1914 are extremely complex. They take place over many, many centuries, basically, of warfare and religious strife, and then you get this Germany, for first time unified, and it, they're hyper-aggressive. Yes. They're hyper-militarized in, in a way that is kind of unique in history. I th well, maybe not unique, it's not the right word, but definitely different than anything we have now. There, it was it was the worship of almost something transcendent about the state, not the state itself. Yeah. It's, it's kind of complex, so that that's kind of just the, comp, um, the, the context we have to go into reading this book. There's a, there's a good excerpt where... He is talking about his recognition of that history as he is basically going off to war here. We had been welded by a few weeks training into one corporate mass inspired by the enthusiasm of one thought. 
to carry forward the German ideals of 70. We had grown up in a material age, and each of us there was a yearning for a great experience, such as we had never known. The war had entered into us like wine. We had set out in a rain of flowers to seek the death of heroes. The war was our dream of greatness, power, and glory. It was a man's work, a duel on fields whose flowers would be stained with blood. There is no lovelier death in the world, anything rather than stay at home, anything to make one with the rest. So obviously with a statement like that, you can see parallels between perhaps, well obviously Germany and the Second World War. Basically the same attitude, war rushing into you like wine, just that imagery. Imperial Japan in the Second World War and... I would even argue during the Russo-Japanese where they, yeah. they had built this martial culture for over many, many years. And I'd also say briefly in the Soviet Union during the, the Great Patriotic War, as they yes, call it. The Different Soviet ethos to it, but still this kind of dying for the state and the country in a sort of glorification Definitely. of that struggle. Yeah, Definitely. So we, we have to understand that context going into this yes. book that... There's a lot of similarities between everybody else going off to war. He's talking about that sense of adventure, but the fact that it's rushing into them like wine. Mm -hmm. It's almost intoxicating, right? Because the idea is wine is pleasurable and intoxicating at the same time. And that's what this war fervor appears as. And they consider themselves living in a material age when they're living in an age that isn't all that material compared to 2020. <laughs> yeah, no, not at they're all. not living in a material age, but they, from their perspective, they're living fat and lazy. Even though they're dying of childhood polio and stuff, and yeah. there's not, there's no cell phones, and there's no computers, there's barely any automobiles at this stage. Right, you have to be extremely wealthy or whatever. Everybody's riding around on horses and stuff, and they're like, "We're living in a material age. We have too much. We have too much. We get to eat sometimes two meals a day. That's too much. You have sugar in your coffee. Sugar unacceptable. Unacceptable." <laughs> so they, it was. In, it's interesting that he says we live in a material age, but it's the same kind of attitude of military adventurism that a lot of these young men go into the military in on both sides, on the Entente and the Central Powers in the First World War with. It's that same attitude. And we should point out that it isn't just a cultural thing either, although there is clearly a huge cultural difference between the German Empire and, for example, the British Empire. As we've alluded to, Ernest Jünger is... Ernst. Ernst. Sorry, I'm going to say Ernest a bit. I'm. Gonna, it's my bad. Yeah. The, the importance of being Ernest, Oscar Wilde. Yes. You're too Anglo for this podcast. I, I am indeed too Anglo. It's going to be hard for you to be a little more German. A little more German, yes. going to bring, bring the German side up. But yes, uh, Jünger is, I think it's fair to say, a more atypical individual than most soldiers. Most soldiers, I would say, guys like Will Arbird or Chris Cox, we've talked about, are ordinary men who go into war... They don't extraordinary situations. Yes. I mean, it's a kind of a trope, just a cliche almost, to be like ordinary men in extraordinary times, but it's it's true. They're, you read them, and you can really, really put yourself in their shoes, mm -hmm. whereas I know you're going to get at this younger, it's a little bit hard to relate with him sometimes, because he is a little bit atypical. Yes. Most men who are soldiers, you know, they don't really like war, but they see it as their job, their duty, and they tough it out. And that's, I think... That's Willard Bird, that's Chris Cox, that's a lot of the men who we have talked about or are going to talk about in this podcast. A lot of men among men are like that. Uh, and of course there's some men who, you know, 
Krumpelenborg. It PTS really hardcore PTSD shell shock. Soldier's Heart, whatever they Soldier's call it. Heart, whatever they call it. Some, and I mean, there's no shame in that. Yeah. War is a yeah. horrifying experience. But there's a very small group of men who thrive on this kind of thing, who are the animated by the it. They, who have, uh, it. And it's yeah. kind of a cliche, but the so-called warrior personality. There are certain people yeah. of this kind of... Temperament. Yes, I'm trying to think of like an, almost an archetype. Who, yeah, an archetype. Yeah. Exactly. Who are able to thrive the, in the, circumstances? The Mad Jack Churchills, the the yeah. Adrian DeWarts, the the, uh, the Wireds. Who's the? It was the German commando during the Second World War. Scorsini. Scorsini. Yeah, the Otto Scorsini. Um, there are people like Lords that. of Arabia. Even. Lords of Arabia. Even, yeah. yeah. Men who are Apparently. adventurers. Men who are. This is what they were. Fight. Yeah. They they can't thrive in any other circumstance because yeah. you look at Lawrence of Arabia. After the war, he re-enlists in the Royal Air Force <laughs> under a fake name, and he's kind of a little bit messed up. He's a little yep. bit loopy, and and Mad Jack is like surfing and throwing people's luggage out of trains. Trades. Throwing his own luggage out of trains so he can walk home. So he walk home and scaring everybody on the train. I think so. Yeah. These guys are kind of the breaking case of war characters. To quote a uh, certain white Russian general from the Russian Civil War, who we may look at later. Hint, 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 hint nudge, nudge. Some men are invaluable in wartime and impossible in peacetime. And I think Junger is very much one of those men. Definitely. And for that reason, he this book is actually kind of controversial. Very Even though so. it, it is published long before the rise of the National Socialists, the Nazi Party in Germany, long before the Second World War, because we are reading from the original translation, just because of his attitude... And it's not necessarily nonchalant in the same... Because you can definitely get that vibe from And We Go On, and even to an extent Fire Force, where they're in these extraordinary times, but because it's a job for them, they're very nonchalant about it, because it's their job. Whether that be burying masses of corpses into mass graves, or killing for the first time, or in Will R. Bird's case, killing for the ninth time in, like the span of five minutes, right? It's it's kind of nonchalant because the war is very dehumanizing in it as an experience. And especially if you couple that with just the monotonous nature of being in the military, as, as anybody that's been on the, in the military knows, it's like 99% monotonous, boring, stupid, nitpicky stuff, 1% machine gun, dick-swinging action. Yeah. Bell-fed. But that's not... That's not most of everybody's experience in the military, it's 99% of it is swapping the floor mm-hmm. and cleaning toilets with to- toothbrushes, stuff like that. So yet you, you couple those two together and you get people that are very nonchalant about some of the crazy experiences that they have just because it becomes a job. Younger is still a very emotional guy in, in some ways because he does a lot of kind of moralizing. He's very philosophical He's reflecting on a lot of stuff that's happened to him in a very profound, deep way. And he's reflecting on it during the war. It's not like, this war has been over for ten years and I've had time to think about it. He's like, this is what I felt at the moment. I was thinking about Nietzsche. I was thinking about this other philosopher. I was thinking about the nature of man. And the nature of war. He's thinking about that because he's he's got this perspective where he, he really does thrive in war. That's where he's thinking. Right, 
And because of that, because of a lot of the similarities, I guess, you could arguably say with some of the propaganda employed by the National Socialists of Adolf Hitler later on in Germany in the 30s and into the, into the Second World War with this very, I guess, zealous approach. Very patriotic. A very patriotic nationalism. Oh, straight up, just straight nationalism. Right? There's no, no other way to... Yeah. We'll dance around words here. Like, straight up, they were just very nationalistic, very proud to the point of being zealous about their state, their respective state, this book is very controversial mm-hmm. because of the because of the links. And of course, he does serve as a, I guess, mid-level officer in the Wehrmacht later on in the Second World War. He's not really in a combat capacity anymore, from my understanding. He spends most of the war as a kind of a garrison duties yes. officer, and obviously the Nazis lost the war. So... It's controversial because he is linked with that perspective. He does carry on service, but he he wasn't a. You can maybe give more context. To yes, we context. we should point out that the Nazis liked Junger's book. It was they considered yeah, it him, wasn't like burn or anything. No, they considered him a a very you know the ideal kind of German soldier. But yeah. interestingly, he was not really a fan of. He was never a member of the German National Socialist Party, and while he fought in World War II as he viewed it as his duty again to his country, he turned down numerous sort of... Higher commands. Higher commands and uh, invitations to join. He... Different unit. He wasn't ever... From my understanding, he wasn't really... No. He might have been in a little bit of a combat capacity sometimes, but not... In fact, he actually left his Veterans Association when they banned Jewish members. His... He oh, was yeah. he was not somebody who was enamored with particularly the sort of racialist ideals of the Nazi party. He shared some of their patriotism, but he was not a uh, I would say he was a not a sympathizer, diehard swastika wearing, yeah, iron cross toting kind of guy. He wasn't. Yeah, he and yeah, yeah, but he was somebody who was viewed as linked with the regime by some. Indeed, he got into trouble after the war. There were a lot of German leftists who viewed him as sort of a prominent Nazi, which was which is kind of a misnomer. Yeah, I very would say. much so. And he did serve with a lot of Jews in the Great War because a lot of German Jews fought in the Great War. A lot of them received very, very high gallantry decorations and iron crosses, and they were fighting all the way to the Rhine as regiment after regiment was getting chewed up by the American, British, Canadians, Australians, the French, all chewing them up all the way to the borders of Germany. And they would have kept going if not for the armistice. They would have just kept ripping them apart. Some of these guys who were Jewish were there all the way to the end. There was actually an Iron Cross recipient that died at Auschwitz because he refused to leave Germany. They basically gave these guys an opportunity, like, hey, you did serve during the Great War, but we might still kill you, so here's your chance to leave. And there was one that unfortunately perished at the Auschwitz concentration camp. And because of stuff like that actually happening, obviously, Ernst Younger thinking about the thought of his comrades in arms fighting for the same Kaiser a few decades ago, getting politically persecuted was obviously not cool with them. No, and I think we should mention that the nationalism that Ernest, Ernst Jünger professes is it's different, certainly different than what the German high command preached during the Second Definitely. World War. Definitely different than the Nazi idea of nationalism. Mm-hmm. Now, again, similarities, but I think it lacked, it lacked that distinctive xenophobic 
I guess, undertones. Yes. Or overtones. Overtones, I was Overtones. Yeah, overtones. Very overtones. <laughs> overtones. Excuse yeah. me. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I don't think they were subtle about <laughs> They weren't exactly subtle about the xenophobia. We kind of hate the Jews. We kind of hate, hate, hate the Slavs. You know, maybe, you know. maybe the Jews can improve a little bit. No, yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. a little more direct, I would yeah. say. You know, the communists, you know, they got some good ideas, but you know. we're not really, you know, they'll know they were very, um, they're very upfront about stuff. Yeah. So he wasn't, he wasn't anti-British. No. In fact, he says, and I'm going to quote an excerpt here. It has always been my ideal in war to eliminate all feelings of hatred and to treat my enemy as an enemy only in battle and to honor him as a man according to his courage. It is exactly in this that I've found many kindred souls among British officers. It depends, of course, on not letting oneself be blinded by an excessive national feeling, as the case generally is between the French and the Germans. The consciousness of the importance of one's own nation ought to reside as a matter of course and unobtrusive in everybody, just as an unconditional sense of honor does in a gentleman. Without this, it is impossible to give others their due. Interestingly, there are very different views towards the the French and the British by many German soldiers in the First World War, which is especially interestingly because the British tend to view the Germans as sort of barbarians and Huns, and there's all these propaganda about German atrocities in Belgium. Well, Generally, um, Ernest, Ernst Junger even says later in the book, why do we have to kill these gallant fellows while talking about British soldiers? There's this, not pro-British, but this view that, you know, why aren't they on our side by a lot of German soldiers have found it. That's mentioned in Peter Jackson's documentary. Oh, yeah, uh, what is that called? That was, They Shall Not Grow Old. Yeah. If you haven't watched that, by the way, amazing documentary. Because Very good. For those that aren't aware of the premise, basically Peter Jackson, the Lord of the Rings director, takes footage from the Great War, which we've all seen. Like It's like choppy and black and white and stupid. Everything looks like a Charlie Chaplin movie. They're moving like 60, you know, at like 2,000 frames a second and stuff, and it's just ridiculous. He actually like slows it all down, makes it very realistic looking. He recolorizes it. He adds sound effects. He actually lugged around some original... World War One artillery pieces to replicate the sounds of what the wheels actually sound like as they're spinning and clanking along. He has horses, he has actual artillery that we recorded, courtesy of the New Zealand arty guys. They actually let him record a live fire exercise that they did, and they actually had microphones like at the beaten zone, which we're going to talk about the beaten <laughs> zone in a little bit, but at the beaten zone of the, of the targets, and Everything is basically almost exactly as it, as if you were right there in the trenches with this original footage. So it's like you're watching a, a modern-day documentary about the war in Afghanistan, except it's 1916 or 1917. It's an amazing documentary, and there's a lot of interviews, and one of them, as you said, was the attitude of a lot of these soldiers on both sides. It was like, why the hell are we fighting each other? We should be fighting against the French! <laughs> you know, last time... Last time there was a big war in Europe. The Germans and the Brits fought against Napoleon. A hundred years before, all their ancestors had fought in the same war and they had died in places like Gibraltar. Spoiler alert, up ahead, we're going to talk about that. They had died in places like Gibraltar. They had died in places like Waterloo together. They had fought valiantly against French totalitarianism as far as they saw. Oh, I guess 
maybe not totalitarianism. They weren't that liberal. They were maybe they were fighting against godless revolutionaries. Yeah. So the opposite of totalitarianism, maybe they're fighting against Jacobins. Jacobins, yeah, yeah, that's what they're fighting against. Mm-hmm. So they were homies just a hundred years ago, and all of a sudden they and were against each other. We should point out that it isn't like Junger hates the French. In fact, he gets along pretty well with French civilians. He's billeted with. Is that the right word? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He also just runs into them here and there. Yeah. Just because there's civilians mulling about because it's... It is a war zone, but people kind of... People got to do what they got to do. Right. People need a farm. People got to farm. You got to milk gotta, the cow. There's settlers trying to sell stuff to them. There's 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 always stuff to do. So Prostitutes. Prostitutes. Lots of prostitutes. Lots of prostitutes. I'm sure you're descended it, from it's them. It's France. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's how your family came to Canada. <laughs> no, no. We're already in Canada by this time. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure there's you no, have no there's idea. No, there no, might no. be the Chinese labor corps. Maybe. Maybe. Get Maybe. Busy. Maybe. <laughs> little little Bindu's uh, swimming around. Yeah. In uh, in France right now, maybe. Maybe who knows? Maybe when you're actually, I don't know. You don't have any ancestors that went to France, as far as I know. No, they no. went to England, so maybe there's some little little Bindu swimming around in England. Probably, there probably is. Now that I think about it, but yes. However, there is definitely, as I said, he doesn't personally hate the French. Yes, but there is certainly more animosity between the Germans and the French than the Germans and the British. And he mentions why that is, and it goes back to the spirit of 70. Some of you may not know this, but there was something called the Franco-Prussian War that happened in 1870 to 71, where Germany basically took France, crumpled it into a basketball, dribbled it down the court, and then shot it out of a cannon. It was a tremendous victory for the Germans. They almost captured Paris. In fact, they probably would have if there hadn't been a uh, peace declared by then. But yeah, it was a catastrophic loss for the French. And a lot of French ferocity in World War One. which, to be fair, there is the cheese-eating surrender monkeys is a good joke, but it doesn't really apply in the no. First World War. Or in most of human history. Yeah, for that the, the French were pretty good fighters. Historically. Yeah. A lot of it is about removing the stain of 1870 and on the german side a lot of it is about recapturing the glory of 1870 von bredo's death ride not things and some regiments like i think ernest jungers the 73rd hanoverian participated in that war and interestingly the 73rd hanoverian so let's actually talk about that unit that that unit interestingly served in the british army prior now we've been using the term german German state, German empire. Germany was a very, very new concept up until kind of 1870. It wasn't really a thing. After the Franco-Prussian War, they're kind of like, okay, we can do this. We could become a German state. But that being said, there was a lot of differences between the various former states that comprised this new German empire. It was a very new concept. The Hanoverians had a very, very long history outside of Germany. That's that's the actual regiment he's he's in. Now, later on, the Hanoverians get incorporated by the Prussian state and eventually by the German Empire. So by the time of Storm of Steel happening, like the actual events of the book, which is the Great War, Ernst Jünger considers himself a Prussian officer. But he's very cognizant of the Hanoverian legacy, the German state of Hanover. I just like to very, very quickly because I could, I could drone on about this forever, but very quickly give some context to that actual regiment. So the seventy-third Hanoverian Fusiliers, 
during the reign of King George III, most Americans will remember that's the guy you, you beat back in, <laughs> back in uh, 80, what is it, 80, 81, right? York, surrender Yorktown? Yes. That's the guy you guys actually beat and signed the Treaty of Paris with and became your own country, right? You'll remember. King George III utilized that regiment very famously because he was from the House of Hanover. So he was from the same royal line as the royalty and the aristocrats, I guess the royal family, rather, of Hanover, that's German state. And he was actually the king of England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, the UK. And he utilized this regiment during the American Revolutionary Wars. Despite the eventual loss in the Americas, there was one very, very successful theater of operations, probably the most successful the British had. And that was actually at Gibraltar, which geographically is located in the very, very southern tip of Spain. Right, like it's like a big, basically a big rock on the sea, on the very southern tip of Spain, bordering the Mediterranean Sea and bordering the Atlantic. And the you know, Mediterranean Sea on one side, Atlantic Ocean on the other. To the south, you have Morocco. It's kind of out of the way, and it's kind of a place that a lot of last stands kind of happen historically. And the American Revolutionary War was no exception. There was a big last stand there of the British forces. Now, as I, as I said before, George III came from this House of Hanover, which is German. Sorry, Brita Booze, you guys are like mostly German. And the House of Windsor is actually basically German, anyways. So, German, well, the, the German if we Anglo Saxons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, sorry, sorry to burst your bubble with Tia Booze, but you know, the House of Windsor today is basically German. Queen Victoria was German, basically. Last sort of native born monarchy were the Stuarts. Basically. Yeah. Basically. So, because he also owns this German state, he's from this German state, basically. Men in Hanover had to fight in the British Army. Maybe not of their own free will, but they did. And the 73rd Hanoverian Fusiliers served with great, great distinction during this siege of Gibraltar. Overall, there were 7,500 men. Again, as I said, in this isolated, between two between two big bodies of water. Like, perfect place to get surrounded, Rourke's Drift style. Except worse, because you're just cut off from from the world. Extremely, extremely valuable, extremely trading valuable. Yeah. port though, and sea con- extremely important for sea control. Totally, very very important place, but a great place to get surrounded. Yeah. And by 1779, during again the American Revolutionary Wars, France and Spain had both decided that they were pissed off at Britain for, I guess, kind of trying vying for naval domination over the seas. They figure they're going to help the Americans out and let's screw up their outpost at Gibraltar because they they captured it previously. Led by uh, General Augustus Elliott, 7,500 men very quickly found themselves faced off with a force of 65,000. That's thousands. 65,000. 7,500 men. So this was well over seven times, almost seven times their force. A huge fleet of French and Spanish ships completely surrounded Ended up there being sur- they were surrounded for three years, 1779 to 1783, and they held out. And it was the longest siege in British military history, funny enough, fought mostly by Germans. <laughs> so, Younger's Regiment, 230 years on at this, uh, I mean, not 200, maybe like, yeah, 200, what is it, to be 200, no, no, sorry, 100, 100 and, 140 years on. 
by the time of the Great War, they still wear, as they're going into the battle, on their, on their brass, you know, insignia, the word Gibraltar in memorialization of that battle. So despite the fact that they're Prussians, they're very cognizant of their Hanoverian heritage. And that's kind of how the entire German Empire, at least the regiments and the units and, and the divisions and stuff, were all kind of work. They're all organized based off their state, and they had their own respective state customs, and the, the soldiers had different attitudes. And obviously, he descends from a very, very proud regiment with a great, great martial history. If you were to look at like a, the British Army, you'd compare them to a unit like the Black Watch who have been everywhere, right? They're the kilt-wearing Scottish Highlanders. Or if you look at the U.S. Army, what's a distinguished unit, you know, like the 101st Airborne Battered Bastards of Bastogne, just to go back to, like, our, our Christmas episode, like, you would get... Or the Army Rangers. Or the Army they Rangers, They go back to, like, yeah. the Civil War, right? Or no, no, they go back to the French-Indian War. They go back yeah. quite a while. Yes. So, yeah. yeah, I'd be looking like the American Rangers. That's, 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 like, the unit he's in. He's in, like, the top-tier crack unit and not only did they have a did they have a battle history with Germany in 1870 during the Franco-Prussian War but they have a battle history going back to the American Revolutionary War when they served the English king King George III in Gibraltar later on this same regiment also fights at Waterloo the famous battle at Waterloo when the Hanoverian fusiliers are right there alongside British regiments and Brunswick regiments, well, I guess other German regiments, Dutch regiments even, Allied army under the Duke of Wellington, Arthur Wellesley, and at Waterloo. Bluch and Blucher. Well, Blucher's late. Oh, yeah. he's, he's, <laughs> he's, he's busy with other stuff. He's in, he's engaging uh, Marshal Grouchy at this. Anyway, we'll get into Napoleon history, Napoleonic history, but they fight at Waterloo, which is another huge climactic battle in the history of Europe. Basically, like, these two gigantic battles that really kind of define Europe for the next 200 years, plus the Franco-Prussian War, which defines German history and the German state for the next 100 years, because it's still remembered and called upon during the time of Hitler, this is his regiment, and he, he is very cognizant of this. He's very, very cognizant of this. He goes into a lot of details throughout this book as well, because not only is he cognizant of his history going into this unit, but he's very cognizant of the fact that as an officer, he has to have probably more meticulous record-keeping. Younger kind of records down to the hour and the detail, and he recounts a lot of these battles and contacts and engagements and campaigns he's involved in while being cognizant of this history. i, I got to backtrack a little bit of uh, in reference to Gibraltar, he's actually at a funeral at one point for a bunch of fallen German soldiers, and there is a speech there that is extremely rousing, and it just goes to show how deep that memory of Gibraltar is for the men of the 73rd. Basically, the Padre giving, I guess, the eulogy, you could call it that, it's kind of impromptu, it's not a really super formal event, because they're, um, they're burying a mass grave, essentially. But he says, Gibraltar, this is your motto, and you have truly stood like a rock in a raging sea. And this almost makes every single man ball tears out of reverence for the men that it's formerly served in their regiment and kind of out of out of respect for their own comrades. It just it evokes a lot of emotions because they're there bearing their comrades, comrades who had served with them in the 73rd and because of that, they're just they're 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 all moved to 
tears, basically. There's not a dry eye there when, when the Padre says it. There's just one line. And he recounts that being a very, very powerful moment. So they're very cognizant of this history. And I guess, in a way, that's why I think Younger has this perspective. Because if he served in some Landwehr unit, which is like a German militia or National Guard reserve unit, the attitude might be a little bit different. It'd be like, well, we're fighting for the Kaiser for this kind of new German state, and I'm from, like, Bavaria, and the Kaiser lives, well, not in Bavaria, but we're kind of part of this German empire now, so I guess we'll do it. Whereas he's, like, he's in, he's 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 right up there with, like, a Prussian guards unit or a cavalry unit. or he, they, they have some pretty pretty deep history so he's not necessarily in a crack elite unit maybe arguably you could say that he's in a pretty good unit regardless but the regimental traditions go very very deep to the point where men are moved to tears by by a padre talking about a battle from 140 years ago he also talks about basically again so just to go back to the details he he, he talks a lot about details and he 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 sees a lot of casualties, and it's interesting. Unlike Will R. Bird, he's able to record a lot more. These guys are writing the book, probably, or their memoirs, rather, around the same time after the war, so the, a certain number of years years have passed after the war. Will R. Bird's writing from the perspective of a private soldier where he doesn't really know everybody in his company. He doesn't know everybody in his, regi or in his regiment and battalion. He doesn't know everybody. He's in the... Black Watch of Canada. He doesn't know everybody in the unit because there's always replacements being cycled in, and sometimes a guy shows up and he's killed within an hour. That actually happens quite a few times in And We Go On, the other book we covered. But with Storm of Steel, you have a lot of meticulous detail, and he has a moment where he's wounded, and it's he comes back to his unit, and it's very very similar to. Another moment in And We Go On when Will R. Bird returns to his unit after the climactic battle of Vimy Ridge on April the 9th. And when he returns, it's just it's a, it's a very interesting reading because he goes into a lot more specifics about his men. Particularly, you know, it's kind of sad, his, his Batman, who is basically his servant. We talked about this in the last podcast. Batman is a lot cooler than it sounds in the in the great war. You know, maybe Batman in 2020 is like, I'm Batman. Cool. And then it's, you know, I'm Batman, but it's 1914. Oh, no. <laughs> so, but he talks about his Batman Schmidt and going back to his unit after taking a leave of absence because he's wounded. He's wounded many times, by the way. But he returns to his unit and there isn't much left. Little Schmidt Fanrik Wilgmut Lieutenants Vogel and Sievers, in fact nearly the whole company, had died fighting to the last. A few survivors only, Lieutenant Witchy among them, were taken prisoners. Not one man got back to Combs to tell the tale of this heroic fight that was fought to the finish with such bitterness. Even the English Army Command made honorable mention of the handful of men who held out to the last near Guillemot. I was no doubt glad of the chance shot that withdrew me, as if by a miracle from certain death on the very eve of the engagement. At the same time, strange as it may sound, I would willingly have shared the fate of my comrades, and stood with them shoulder to shoulder, while the iron dice of war rolled over us. Instead of this, I kept the unquenchable fame of these men as my reminder, in the worst moments of the sanguinary conflicts that were yet in store, that I must show myself always worthy to have been their comrade." Iron Dice of War. I like that. 
There's a lot of good stuff. Junger actually, guys, is a professional writer, and that's his main career after both the Great War yeah, he's and a, He's World a little War bit II. of an advantage, for sure. He, so, yeah, it, as far as most military memoirs go, this one's probably a bit more poetic than most, because, again, this is his... Yeah, Will Our Bird's education. Yeah. Will Our Bird's formal education is literally playing hockey. Yeah. Well, not just Will Our Bird, but, but like that's, that's a lot of people. Yeah. It's like high school or play well, Will Our Bird doesn't even have high school. He just plays hockey. Yeah. I'm just saying so compared to most soldiers, Junger's a bit more flowery because he is Definitely. indeed a professional writer. That's his calling. And I think the purpose of his book, he does a lot of moralizing. We will get to that. We're gonna talk about like the conditions of no man's land in some of these battles. By the way, we're we're skipping a lot of stuff in this book. There was a lot of stuff that we we almost we almost wish we could read the whole book to you, but you'll have to get this book. You, you, this is just one where you have to read, and I kind of read it in two sittings because it was that it was that captivating. It kind of draws you in. So we're skipping a lot. Please get the book. And same with and we go on. We barely scratch the surface with it. You have to get into that book and. Both of the memoirs, in their own ways, are very captivating, and will definitely draw you in. But he talks. So, so, anyways, back back to the book itself. In that moment, he's talking about like he's able to name everybody that's wounded or killed ever. Each individual man in under his command. He doesn't gloss over any details. He's actually able to identify an English officer that he personally kills later on during another section. A guy from, I think. Goodness, I don't remember the regiment. I think it was the Manchester Regiment. But it was it was a British officer that he ends up gunning down. And basically he's like rummaging through his personal effects. Because there was looting, a lot of looting during the Great War. If you weren't going to loot it, it was going to rot in the battlefield. So looting happened, as, as we talked about in And We Go On. Looter be looted. Looter be looted. So he finds like pictures of his girlfriend and stuff and I was actually able to track down because of the date and this the description of the officer exactly who this man was so he's a lot of details and as a result you you can connect with people in a different way when it's just not when it's not just this guy showed up to the trenches and he died right and it, and I think it becomes a lot more poetic when there is characters because Will Arbird's war very, very quickly becomes a blur. He meets these people at the start, and they're kind of his mates in the company, and they're all dead within the first battle, Within by the end of Emmy, Everybody's dead. And in the same way, Younger has this moment after... Gil, Gil, how do you say? Guillemot? Guillemot? Guillemot. Guillemot. He's got back to his company, and everybody's dead. All these guys that he had just served with through roughly two one and a half, two years of war at this stage, are all gone. Everybody ever met. So, but he continues, he continues to know every single person. It's not like where Will Arbird basically is alone. He doesn't know anybody. He has like one or two friends. and There are a few memorable characters. There are a few memorable. And we go water on. Water bottle and the, the, the scholar. The scholar, we talked about the, or not the, the student, sorry. The, the student. student, yeah, and his the mate student. at the very end. Tommy. Tommy, yeah. But yes, there's definitely a difference in how the books are written. Will Arbert, as you said, characters come and go. It's a blur. Well, Yeah, they're very clear at the start, and then because of the way the war goes for him, they become a blur. And I think that's intentional, because he literally remembers it as a blur. Like, he wants to emphasize it's a blur. Whereas, Younger's very meticulous. Because of his role as an officer, he's actually got nominal roles. And again, he's proud of the regimental history, so this is, in a way... 
a regimental history of what the 73rd Hanoverian Fusiliers did during the Great War. It's not. It's almost not just his memoir. It's his regiment's battle diary, so to speak, from a first-person perspective, right? Another example of just the the detail he's talking about, or he emphasizes throughout, is the combat evacuation of a uh, lieutenant. I hope I'm. I guess it'd still be lieutenant. Yeah, lieutenant in German. Lieutenant Sandvoss. I was about to say lieutenant, but I guess that's still that's a very Commonwealth Empire thing. So Lieutenant Sandvoss's combat evacuation. He was in a sad plight. He had been hit by two shrapnel bullets in the attack, one of which had pierced the lung and the other his right shoulder. Fever shone in his eyes. It was only with difficulty that he could move or speak or breathe. He returned the pressure of my hand, and we began to talk. It was clear to me that I could not leave him there. For any moment the English might attack, or a shell put an end to the already damaged concrete shelter. It was a brother's duty to get him sent back at once. In spite of Sandvoss, who would not hear of any weakening our strength, I ordered the firemen who had come with me to get my brother back Columbusset dressing station, and from there to bring back with him, with the men to rescue the other wounded also. We tied him in a ground sheet and stuck a long pole through it, which rested on two of the men's shoulders. I squeezed his hand again, and the sad procession started on its way. It sounds like an evacuation of the wounded. Or, sorry, it sounds like a funeral. Basically. The evacuation of the wounded sounds like a bloody funeral. Now, this officer does survive, at least this incident, but... It's just, he's, he's kind of meticulous about how he's describing it, the number of men involved, how they're actually carrying him. He's very meticulous, whereas Willard Bird, because it's such a blur... We, we dragged him from here to there, right? He's very poetic in his, his language. And it just that's just, I guess, context for the book for you guys going into it. There's going to be a lot of that. It's just this relatively minor incident where this... Well, it's not minor. I mean, for some people, seeing a guy you've been working with for a little while get wounded in a pretty bad way, and he's potentially going to die, having to bug him out under fire and all the rest, might not be... might be a very memorable experience, might not be, but it very well could be a very memorable experience, but the, every little thing is, is not glossed over in this book. It's not, even though it's not that long of a book. No, it's not. It's only for, about... For talking about three years at war, it's not that long of a it's book. It's not even... It's under 200 pages. Yeah, I think Willard Bird's book is longer. Yeah. Which is interesting how it turns out. The war itself was pretty gnarly. That's very, an understatement. Uh, <laughs> yeah, understatement of the century, literally. At the beginning of the book, he's talking about when he arrives at the trenches for the first time, seeing torn bits of equipment, rifles, dead animals, bodies being churned up by the road. It's it's child's doll. Ch- child's doll lying in the middle, of it. In the middle yeah. of it. Dead mice. We remember that excerpt at the very beginning that we had read. He hops into a trench, and because of the chlorine gases settled to the bottom of the trench, it's killed all the mice at the bottom of the trench. There's dead mice and rats and rats and stuff ferrets probably probably. whatever the heck he's running into it's it's strange it's surreal it's very very surreal what he has to go through and what he has to do to endure the situation even as an officer with relatively better living conditions than some of the men always on stand to always on picket during frontline duties on both sides of the war he at least has a batman throughout the entire war. Real different Batman. Schmidt dies and he gets another one. But he, he has these like assistants that are helping him cook through the war. 
But things aren't exactly good for him either, because he's still living in this situation where everything is muddy and horrific and confusing. Extremely, extremely confusing. And We Go On has a lot of mentions by Willard Bird about him getting lost in the maze of trenches and wires, wire entangle, wire obstacles. It's, it's like a big hedgerow maze. And mixed in, like you said, is pieces of children's dolls, rifles, equipment packs, dead bodies, dead horses, skeletons of who knows what, and ferrets, and mice, and, and just garbage. You're walking through a blown-up landfill that happens to have corpses in it. Lots of corpses. Lots of corpses. You haven't had a whole lot of food, and you're, you're, you're basically delirious the whole time. So it's, it's very easy to get lost and stuff. But it's it's hard for us to recognize how people can be nonchalant about it in this situation. I don't think Younger's too nonchalant about it. He's probably one of the most emotional writers I've seen describing these situations. Because most people will say, oh, it was, it was muddy, it sucked. That's kind of what Willard Bird goes on. He's like, it's muddy, it sucked, we got lost. And it's very matter of fact. But I think I connected more with, with this part where he's talking about the... Basically part of a certain battlefield where corpses are being churned up by the mud and the artillery fire and the f constant fighting corpses from previous battles are basically being churned up and I, I connected with this I think more because he emphasizes just kind of how how horrific it is and it, it'd be like kind of how we would see it from our perspective the sunken road now appeared as nothing but an enormous sea of shell holes filled with pieces of uniform weapons and dead bodies the ground all round, as far as the eye could see, was plowed by shells. You could search in vain for one wretched blade of grass. This churned-up battlefield was ghastly. Among the living lay the dead. One company after another had been shoved into the drum fire and steadily annihilated. Corpses were covered with masses of soil, turned up by the shells, and the next company advanced in the place of the fallen. Yeah. Not a very happy place. No. And again, these are... Previously, green fields, not unlike you'll find outside any city, farmland, which have been turned into some a place which kind of resembles the moon if you added a shit ton of rain. And garbage. And garbage. Little, little and just garbage. Just, yeah. Just crap. Mm -hmm. Strewn everywhere. Yeah. Have, have you ever actually been to, like, Passchendaele or Vimy? No, I've actually never been to continental Europe. Well, they're, they're green. They're just green fields now. Mm -hmm. And that's what they looked like before the... Damn yeah, and that's minus what's... minus the trenches that have been permanently dug into the landscape that you'll still see. You'll still see the remnants of a lot of trenches, but you walk through there, it's just it's green. It rains a lot though. It rains yeah, it a does. lot when yeah. it's there. It's interesting. And that probably accounts for the hellish conditions of places like Passchendaele, where just everything was yeah, mud. Dudes were literally drowning. Yes, it, it turned in. Forget trench warfare; it became swamp warfare. Yeah, totally. Now. He's got a, he, just because of the fact he's, he's a damn Hanoverian, he's a 73rd Fusilier. It was rainy at Waterloo, you know, for, for them, they're, they're, he's, he's, he's not nonchalant about it, but he puts on a pretty brave face despite it, but you can feel that he's obviously, the way he's describing it, he was disturbed by seeing pieces of body, limbs popping out out of the ground all of a sudden, and uh, there's, there's actually another moment in the book where he's talking about finding pieces of uniform parts that have 1914 dated insignia. And he's like, well, this guy's been here for a while. That's obviously this uniform component's from a corpse. 
has just been churned up in this landfill of disaster, right? And he's he's finding old insignia that's not issued anymore. Uh, dude's it's like a grotesque archaeologist. Mm-hmm. For all of Younger's patriotism, and for all the fact that he is one of those special men who seems to thrive in wartime, even he is not totally immune to the horrors of war. And he describes that in his book. Like he's not some sort of crazed sadist who loves killing. He understands the death and destruction around him. He thrives in that environment, I think, better than the average person ever could. But even he's not immune to the absolute apocalypse that is going on around him. He's also not immune to the physical situation of the trenches being extremely confusing. Mm-hmm. Especially as, a, as an officer, because unfortunately he, he has access to a little more alcohol than the men. There's actually a moment in the book relatively early on he learns his lesson not to do this again but he somebody offers him a bottle of red wine and alcohol is going to be a recurring theme there's a few moments in the book where alcohol is a thing whereas will on birdie finds alcohol like the once other than the rum rations he finds alcohol once and it's a party but for him as an officer he had a few more privileges so he does he does get this bottle of red wine he gets a little bit intoxicated and he ends up wandering <laughs> into a shell hole and he's like this shell hole wasn't here yesterday and he's just completely lost and and then he just hears English speakers and he's like uh oh <laughs> in the wrong trench and he has to kind of wander back drunkenly through no man's land and he's not like plastered he's just a little bit he's had a little bit to drink but he's it's just the, the situations were so confusing I think he's also doing this at night which obviously doesn't help but the stuff was super confusing for these guys. They were not having a good time doing this. And it's it's interesting what he does to kind of cope with this situation. He, obviously talking to other people, because you feel, in his own words, unnaturally lonely as this is going on. So he's talking to, when he's a junior soldier before he's an officer, because I think the first chapter of the book, he's not an officer yet. He's just a, he's just a soldat. He's a, he's a, junior most soldier and then he eventually becomes an officer cadet in the the second chapter and then he carries on his war as an officer but when he's a junior soldier even like NCOs high ranking people or higher ranking people people in positions of authority when they're on a sentry picket together on, on trench duty as he calls it they're talking about everything. They're talking about girlfriends back home. They're talking about their their lives, their their philosophies, their fears, their thoughts, everything, everything under their sun. I'm sorry, everything under the sun, or perhaps lack thereof, sun. They're talking about everything just to because it's it's unnaturally lonely. Spending five minutes alone with with no one around you is the most it's 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 an eternity for these guys. And that's kind of the vibe that he gets out of wandering into this minefield and he can hear voices but they're English voices and he's just he's like I'm I'm alone. He feels very alone through a lot of it. You get that as well when he returns back to his company after they've been decimated at Guillemont. Guillemont. I have a hard time pronouncing that. Again, we're we're not we're Anglophones, sorry. Sorry French people. But after he returns to his company, he's that same isolating experience. So, you know, he's talking to people. He's trying to cope with it the best he can. Of course, alcohol, I mentioned. He actually gets into a fight with a guy over a fellow officer, I think over navigation, you know, typical officer stuff, getting lost in the trenches. So they get into, like, a fist fight, basically. The officer is like, sorry, bro. (laughs) 
I didn't mean to do that. The enemy's over there, not here, right? Sorry, that tension's gotten inflamed. So that doesn't look good for the men. So actually, the other officer basically got him a bottle of burgundy in the trenches on the front, and they calmed the nerves, as, as he put it. They're doing everything possible to make make things better for them, and it's... Oh, well, I gotta mention the food here. Before before we get into the excerpt, before we get into the excerpt, I gotta mention the food. We will get into the excerpt and, and what it's about, but it's not a, it's not very good food. No, he he describes one meal. Now, it's not as bad in the beginning of the war, but it gets worse and worse because the German supply line's being cut progressively throughout the war. They're getting blockaded by the British Navy. After the Battle of Jutland, there is no <laughs> German Navy anymore, so they're getting progressively blockaded on the mainland. They're not able to bring stuff in. They're losing African colonies. Things are going pretty badly for the Germans. Also, they're fighting on two fronts on both sides, right? So they're they're encircled, and they can't bring in supplies, so the food food's the first to go. Bullets and guns and bullets come first, right? So food's first to go for, for these guys. I think it should be mentioned here that... The the German soldier, and this does not mean to take away from anything, uh, any of the heroics that the Entente soldiers do, but for guys like the Canadians, it's basically the Western Front is it. That's their entire theater of war. Um, obviously, the British Empire spread out further, and I mean, there's some Newfoundlanders at Vimy, but the Canadians are basically just at the Western Front, while Germans, now not younger specifically, are... They're in Italy. They're in the Balkans. They're all across the entire Eastern yeah, Front. They're, they're, some of them get sent to Turkey. Like they're so yeah. The Germans are facing a lot of. Uh, they're they're spread. They become spread more. They're thin. fighting on every front. Yeah, they get spread very thin. Mm-hmm. And when you're when things go bad, the first thing to go is food. Yes. He describes one meal in 1917. This is the this is the. Uh, culinary experience of the Great War, so prepare yourself. Delicious stuff. A third of a loaf of bread. A third of a loaf of bread. A thin midday soup. Uh, moldy jam. Gotta have the mold for the gut. Good for your, uh, what is it? Digestion. Digestion. And most of that moldy jam had been eaten by rats by the time they had given it to him. That was his meal for the day. At least he had someone to prepare it for him, but I'm not sure you prepare... Thin loaves of bread, midday soup, and moldy jam, most of which was already eaten. Like, he basically gets this jar of jam that's... He opens it up, and it's like, oh, the rats have gotten this. Cool. So the food, by the time it's been issued to him, has already been half-eaten. And bear in mind, he's an officer. So he's someone cooking for him. It was a little bit worse for... Well, a little bit might be an understatement for <laughs> for the for the front-line, you know, enlisted infantrymen. It was pretty bad. At least the food supply remained fairly consistent throughout the war for the Entente powers just because of the fact that they controlled the seas by 1918 for sure. They definitely controlled the seas. And supplies were able to come in through the colonies, throughout the United States when the United States entered the war in 1917. A lot of food was brought over. A lot of canned foods, right? We, we, we've all heard stories about bully beef and stuff and beans, army beans and beef. And you know what? Yeah, not not the most appealing thing in the world, but at least that's proteins and calories. These guys were not getting the calories they needed by any stretch of the imagination. A third of a loaf of bread, a thin midday soup, emphasizing the word thin, so like water with a turnip inside it, 
hot water turnip, hot turnip water. <laughs> Let's just call it for what it is. Oh boy. And moldy jam that's mostly been eaten by, by rats. Time, by rats. By the time it's got to you, it it it's not a very pleasant experience. He mentions that hunger kind of drives men loopy. It removes any civility that is not already born into a man. Because a lot of civility is kind of taught by society. Table manners. Don't chew while you speak. Don't chew while, I guess, you yell. Don't, I guess, don't put your elbows on the table. Wipe your mouth afterwards. Use a napkin, that kind of stuff. You know, table manner stuff. You gotta work on yours, by the way, you savage. Well, you're, you're a caveman. If your response to this, remember when you had me do a 24-hour fast? I was ready to stab you three hours. I know, that. I know. People lose their minds when they're when they're hungry. Yeah. You know what it's like? Because I've I've done I've done the I did the 72-hour fast. Ah. Yeah. I didn't sleep either. Yeah. No. Yeah. I was seeing I was seeing, seeing demons. It was crazy. So. When you're when you're doing like a hard fast, I think that's if for any of you guys that have done a hard fast, you understand like you can go a little bit loopy for sure. You can imagine not only doing a hard f- fast, but you're under fire too, under sustained combat conditions most of the time for years, for years on end. And you might be redeployed from Africa to the Western Front, and then the Eastern Front, and then back to the Western Front. You can imagine how loopy you get. So kind of table manners and decorum go out the window. And he he mentions. Uh, privation and danger tear away all that has been acquired and then good form only survives in those whom it is born i think this is a subtle dig at his fellow soldiers like he kind of kept his table manners he he didn't lose his mind he tried not to he tried to be like listen i'm still a human being i'm not an animal i'm not a savage i'm doing my job i'm still a prussian officer he is a kind of guy born with it Mm-hmm. And that's just the dichotomy between the two types of individuals that you have in wartime. You have you have the everyman, and then you have these these unique individuals. And they're not necessarily supermen, because they're normal men too. But their attitude, their mindset is just, this is what I was born to do, mm-hmm. right? And it's not something that's learned. Because like he said, the people that have learned table manners and civilities, and perhaps how to be an officer and how to act and conduct themselves professionally and like a like a Prussian aristocrat, like a true Prussian, that went out the window the moment they're being given moldy jam and a third of a loaf of bread as their daily ration. It goes right out the window. They're just chomping on that, mouth open, crumbs everywhere, and that's not that's not younger. He's he's very disciplined about how he's doing everything because he's born with it. It's not something he was taught, right? And that just that again, emphasizes what kind of character Ernst Younger was. But regardless, when you're under fire, you kind of just you kind of just have to stick it through. He's got a really good excerpt. Sorry, we're reading a lot from this book, but again, we are not even scratching the surface. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of excerpts we're reading. You cower in a heap alone, in a hole, and feel yourself the victim of a pitiless thirst for destruction. With horror, you feel that all your intelligence... Your capacities, your bodily and spiritual characteristics have become utterly meaningless and absurd. While you think it, the lump of metal that will crush you to a shapeless nothing may have started on its course. Your discomfort is concentrated in your ear that tries to distinguish amid the uproar in the swirl of your own death rushing near. 
It is dark, too, and you must find yourself alone, all the strength for holding out. You can't get up, and with a bless laugh, light a cigarette in the wondering sight of your companions. Nor can you be encouraged by the sight of your friend clipping a monocle into his eye to observe a hit on the traverse close behind you. You know that not even a cock will crow when you are hit. Well, why don't you jump up and rush into the night till you collapse in safety behind a bush like an exhausted animal? Why do you hang on there all the time, you and your braves? There are no superior officers to see you, yet someone watches you. Unbeknown, perhaps to yourself, there is someone within you who keeps you to your post by the power of two mighty spells, duty and honor. You know that this is your place in the battle, and that a whole people relies on you to do your job. You feel if I leave my post, I am a coward in my own eyes, a wretch who will ever after blush every word of praise. You clench your teeth and stay. It's interesting because Jünger was not a very religious man up until the very last years of his life. But despite being a man who declared himself more or less an atheist, he's extremely spiritual in different way. In, in the same way Willard Bird is, because he's not overtly religious. Mm-hmm. He actually, there's a... We didn't mention this in the last podcast, but Willard Bird is kind of pissed off when there's a church service. Yeah. Because they make him dress up and look nice and clean his uniform, and he's just like, listen, I just want to go out and kill Germans and do my job. This is a waste of my time. There's some asshole up there in a beautiful, magnificent uniform, and he's wearing the chaplain's badge. Good for him. He's not having to fight in the trenches. He's not having to die and see all of his friends die in horrific ways or come back to his company after leaving for a week and be like, well, I guess... All my friends have died. Cool. Like that he just he's very upset and he's not religious by any stretch of the imagination, but both the dudes very, very spiritual. Mm-hmm. There were chaplains, by the way, who did go through hell and back field. Yes. Dis- that's, that's disclaim true. that. But this that's guy true. in particular was not No, this guy was a, the one chaplain he describes for the Black Watch was a parade officer. Okay. Yeah. He he, he shows up in his kilt looking all smart, looking all clean, while everyone's crusty, and he kind of doesn't even look at you until you clean yourself up and show up to show up to Mass, right, to Sunday service. And that's just not... That doesn't fly with Will Iberti. He's not a big fan of that. Yeah. He's not a big fan of that by any stretch of the imagination. So we are already running pretty short on damn time. Yeah. <laughs> we've been, we've been kind of nerding out over, over the philosophizing and stuff that... Well, younger more just over the quotes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the quotes. It's just a, it's a very well-written book. Extremely well-written. I still like Amy Go On a little bit better because I, I just connect with it better. Yeah. I know you're, you're maybe more of a fan of this in some yeah, ways. Yeah, but... But that being said, we haven't really talked about weaponry and kits, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it. We don't... Again, we, we could spend another hour talking about it, but we won't bore you. Just get the book. Mm-hmm. Just get the book, guys. We're just giving you guys context. But a lot of uh, combat takes place above people's heads. I don't mean just aerial combat, because that is a factory. There's a lot of Royal Flying Corps strafing them and bombing them and stuff. But a lot of it is on flight fire created by high-angle shooting. So whether that be machine guns, whether that be catapults launching grenades, because he mentions that as being an actual thing, trench mortars... So, we talked about the Stokes mortar last time, in the other podcast with Will Our Birds, and we go on. The Germans are using the Lance trench mortar, similar thing, lobbing explosive rounds at a high angle and having that 
round eventually drop on the enemy trench, depriving them of any deflate cover they have in the trench that they're in. Rifle grenades, so basically you have some sort of a launcher attached to the end of your rifle, you screw it in, you put a blank round in, with that blank round discharging gas, eventually launching the grenade as a projectile further than you can throw it, grenade lands in enemy trench, blows up, kills a bunch of people. It's all high angle, all high angle fighting. Some of it is up close and personal. There's some moments, especially with Younger as an officer, when he does have to kill people, he's using his, his sidearm. I don't think he ever specifies what sidearm he's using, but really, as an officer, most of the time he's carrying a very, as he calls it, a V-E-R-E-Y, a very, which is a, it's the signal gun, which can burn you pretty severely, but isn't isn't the best self-defense weapon. Yeah, it's, weapon. Not, yeah. it's not the best weapon in the world compared to a guy with a bayonet and rifle. And on top of that, he's got his, I guess, his service pistol, whether that be like a C-96 broom handle or I think maybe like a Luger or something, something like that. Right, he's got his. He's got a pistol, probably a nine millimeter, and that's it. He doesn't have a bayonet. He doesn't have like a, it. Doesn't seem like he does any knife fighting or anything. Not like Will Arbert, who's bayoneting people in the face every other page. Right. I think Younger mentions he bayonets a few people, but yeah, again, but it's just it's, it's not uh, yeah, not not to the same extent of no. we go on. The really dramatic moments when he he has contacts, especially with the British, when he encounters an Indian cavalry regiment. He's firing his revolver, and that's how he's he's or not sorry, not his revolver, his pistol. That's how he's dropping people. He's dropping people with his pistol, right? So it's kind of up close and personal. But the vast majority of the war is that he's organizing dudes to conduct this kind of high angle warfare, creating a lot of beaten areas. So beaten grounds just basically ground where bullets are dropping, and I, I don't know if that's just the Canadian terminology. That's how I've come to know it, but just. Wherever the bullets are landing, creating the biggest space where the bullets are landing, because you got guys inside the trench, so deflates or they're in cover, and you want to create as basically rain. You want to you want to rain down on them, essentially, with as many bullets, grenades, shrapnel, explosives, whatever you have, right? Tennis balls, whatever you're throwing at them, it has to land on them eventually, and to create a bigger space, you know, you go up at a higher angle. So he's talking about high angle machine gun fire using very, very effectively by both sides, and the British are able to use it so effectively that there's moments where there's basically no use taking cover, because the Brit Brits, especially with trench warfare, you have so long to kind of zeroize your machine gun, so they're just perfect, they're going to land, and the enfilade fire, the beaten area, is going to be just their trench line, and you're going to kill everybody inside that trench, because statistically, you're just going to get hit by something, it's just the way it is, because when you are shooting at a higher angle, the bullets land in different places, right? Whereas if you're shooting at contact or the enemy within defilade, so they're behind cover, you're either hitting that piece of cover or you're hitting only like one spot. So maybe if they pop their head out, you'll nail them, right? I mean, that was most of the casualties of the Vietnam War, according to Thunder, Thunder Ranch. Like, it's people... I think most of the casualties in the Vietnam War, as far as I know, I don't know about the Great War, but most of the casualties in the Vietnam War who died, the fatal casualties, were dudes that kind of put their shoulder and their head above any parapet, right? And then eventually they, they got schwacked. And, you know, you get hit in the head generally. 
there's a good chance it can be fatal. You need, even if you have a helmet on. Also, you got your lungs. You got your you got your heart. So just that top half of the body when it's exposed. So people don't want to really expose that oftentimes because that's how you die. So you're probably just not going to hit the person. Now, if you're going right above their head, there's nothing they can do, right? You're probably going to at least wound them if not kill them outright. Because obviously you can shoot someone in the forehead or you can shoot them in the top of the head. Either way, you've shot them in the head and they're not going to have a good day. It might be their last day, in fact. That is the nature of the war, high-angle fire, that he encounters a lot. He's also mentioning, just, just to go back to the aircraft a little bit, he does mention the British have a lot of observer balloons, something that the Germans kind of lack. They don't have... They don't really lack the air power and the, and the fighter planes and the bombers and that kind of stuff, but when it comes to the observer balloons, they make a huge difference because he basically sees these balloons and they're able to report back so quickly that they, they, get, they get bombed. The moment there's like movement and they're doing something and the observer balloon's watching them, it's like clockwork. The Brits seem to always know what's going on, right? And it just shows how important Recky was even during this period when you know exactly where the enemy is, but you have to know exactly when you drop on-flight fire or effective on-flight fire on them. Germans just love things that float, man. You know, Zeppelins, balloons, yeah. it's just, they love things that float. Yeah, but unfortunately they didn't have as many observer balloons. Otherwise things that would have been better coordinated for them. That's, some, that's something Younger goes into. And he does see them getting shot down occasionally by their fighters, but most of the time... You see the observer balloon, and it's already too late. The, the British artillery knows exactly what you're doing, what you're, where you are, and they're starting to zero on you. And, I mean, that high-angle fire is absolutely brutal. There's not a whole lot you can do. Like he says, there's no point tank cover. You're just either going to get hit. I mean, Younger is wounded 14 times. 14, 1-4. One, so, I'm not taking it with a grain of salt. I believe him when he says, there's no use taking cover. And I think that's something we need to remember about trench warfare. You can hide in that trench all day. You might get a chance if the enemies figured you out in the maze of no man's... You know, in between the maze of no man's land, they've set up a really, really good machine gun position. You're just going to die. Or you're going to get wounded. It's just the statistical likelihood. Or if you're a tree, you're going to get knocked over. Exactly. Exactly. They're throwing grenades at you, too, on top of this. I'm talking about machine gun fire, but they're throwing grenades at you. He really doesn't like the British. I don't know if they're Mills bombs. I don't think so, but he says the Brits apparently have these lemon-shaped bombs. He calls them duckheads. He really dislikes those. But there are a lot of duels that kind of go back and forth between German forces and the British forces, which could very well be the Canadian or Australian. There's no way for him to know... I'm sure he's not an expert in the uniforms. They all kind of look the same because they're khaki and they're, the Germans are gray. So it's not like he's extremely confused, but there are basically grenade duels where these guys are all running up there just throwing grenades back and forth at each other, and that's how they're fighting. There's a lot of that going on. So there's a lot of, I guess you could call high-angle warfare. It's all high angles, right? And that's how a lot of the, I guess, Sustained fighting between infantry units happens is this high-angle fighting where they're either throwing things or they're shooting rounds high so that you get a bigger beaten zone, beaten area. There's also a mention of him actually getting what, what, very like interesting 
I guess, account of being wounded one of the times, because he's wounded so many times, but when he's hit by artillery one time, which is, again, another high-angle weapon, he's basically just, like, wandering. He doesn't know... He, he barely even acknowledges that he's been wounded, and he doesn't know what he's doing. And again, he just walks through no man's land. He's completely lost. He feels isolated. And it, it's, it sounds like he's almost there for just a day wandering. He doesn't even go back to his line. He doesn't try to go seek help. He doesn't lie there. He kind of just like mopes around no man's land and then wakes up back in his trenches, but, you know, back at friendly lines. He's just, he's, he, he loses sense of time. When he's describing it, he doesn't know what's happening. It's very confusing. Shortly before this, he, he recounts a, another incident where he actually, he personally throws a grenade at a figure in front of him. And unfortunately, the figure is like a like an NCO in his own unit. It's just, everything's so foggy and blurry. And obviously, they're all wearing gray, and the, 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 the Entente powers are either wearing blue, if they're French, right? That, that French blue. Or the British khaki, or khaki, as we say in Canada. So... There shouldn't be too much room for confusion, but that just shows how like surreal the experience is. You're just kind of like throwing grenades and kind of, in some ways, hoping for the best, right? And he actually ends up like throwing it at one of his own NCOs. Great way to lead. <laughs> so he's he's like horrified, but luckily the guy ducks out of the way and he's like, oh, damn, and he pushes on with the assault. But it's not a good time, obviously. Like it's just it's very confusing. It's very surreal, the combat, just because so much is happening, and it's all happening above your head. It's not Waterloo or Gibraltar anymore, these wars that were fought by his predecessors, where you would march up in a line, there'd be the enemy in front of you, you'd present arms with your musket, with your brown bests, and you'd shoot, and you shoot until they died, or broke, or you died, or broke. Right? That's 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 what it was. And if you flank around them, you flank around them, whatever. It wasn't things flying over your head and landing on the top of your head or on your shoulder or on your leg and nailing you. And you don't even know what the heck it was. Because I, I, he doesn't even know what hits him when he is wounded. I think it's by artillery, but it could have well... He just remembers seeing a flash. And next thing he knows, he's like... It sounds like he's on like an LSD trip. Walking through the trenches and he's seeing like children's toys and stuff. And he's just like, well... But because there were like children's toys and weird creepy dolls and body parts, it's terrifying. Yeah, he's, so he's like on an LSD trip basically after he's been. He's you know obviously there's adrenaline and stuff pumping through, his, so he's not in the best state of mind. But it sounded like an LSD trip. It sounded like a DMT trip. He was just out there seeing stuff, and time melted away for him, and he just kind of somehow made it back to his trenches. But he. It was a very surreal experience, and that was that was the warfare. And it just you know, you kind of didn't see it happen, right? You throw a grenade or you shoot your rounds high, and occasionally you did see it happen, but most of the fighting was this kind of very indirect, inhuman way of doing it. It wasn't it wasn't close quarters at all. You know, we, we might think it was. We got a picture in our mind of a soldier with a bayonet stabbing somebody. That wasn't always the norm. Most of it was this very invisible, well, I'm dead now, kind of deal. Also, they shoot down a Christmas tree. Yes. <laughs> I have to mention, I was going to mention that earlier, but they shoot down a Christmas tree. I was trying to prompt you there. Yeah. <laughs> I said, but if they shoot, if you're a tree, they shoot you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, damn, I should have gone for that. Prompt. Yeah. I should have, uh, I should, oh, 
That's what you're getting at. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're no, right. It's just like, right. oh, yeah, they shoot trees every now and then. Yeah. They, so we, we, back to our Christmas podcast, we were talking about the truce and the fact, we didn't go too deep into the 1914 truce. We're talk, That's what we're talking about. And we mentioned that basically the fighting stopped and it was an interesting experience. But 19, Christmas 1915, the Germans are singing Christmas carols, hoping there's going to be another truce. And Younger describes this, because this is when he is in the trenches for the first time, and the Brits lay down on them with his high-angle machine gun fire, so that obviously that interrupts their Christmas carols. Now, because it was such a common thing to have this high-angle machine gun fire and people getting killed all the time, randomly, they're, they're not too annoyed by it. They're a little bit nonchalant about it, but what they're upset at is the machine guns... When they're firing and they're rattling and they're making noise and they're splashing rounds around them are so loud they can't hear their own Christmas carols anymore. So this pisses them off. It's not the fact that they could die, but it's like I can't hear myself sing. So the Brits stop shooting for a moment. They're like, oh yeah, it's Christmas today. So they put up a Christmas tree over top of their parapet, which is the edge of the forward edge of their trench. They put up a Christmas tree. They raise it. And it's got like probably like lights and decorations on. It. They're like, hey, like yeah, sorry. Younger is like screw it, and his guys immediately blow up, blow up that Christmas tree. <laughs> and they're not getting presents this year. They're not getting presents this year. So that's that's Christmas 1915 for you. Everybody knows about Christmas 1914, and that's one of the very few uh, excerpts, other than like unofficial truces and smaller scale stuff, where you get an account of a battle. And it's over Christmas carols and Christmas trees, and I'm sure people died during this <laughs> engagement, but. That that was just the, that was the nature of the war. It was it was four years of this. I think it's uh, correct here to mention how young Junger is. He is twenty four, I believe, when the war ends. So he's a whereas Will our bird, by contrast, is twenty four when the war starts. <laughs> yeah, Junger yeah. is a young guy, and as much as he is this leader and sort of great Prussian warrior and everything, he's kind of you young. can tell his age by certain things in the book. Yeah. Like he has an almost childlike view of looking up to his superior officers and there's one scene where and i just have to bring this up because it's so cute is where (laughs) being used in the where he's taking a bath with this french family he's staying he's not taking a bath with them he's in the tub yes and a pretty french girl actually comes into the room without knowing he's there. And Junger is, like, so, like, ashamed and nervous and is, like, yeah. covering himself up. It's like like a kid at the high school dance. Yeah. It's just hilarious to read about. Yeah, this hardcore Prussian warrior. Yeah. Who's, like, eating moldy jam and yeah. has no fear of death, right? Yeah. Having to cover himself like a schoolboy. Yeah. The pretty girls walked in on him. It's it, it's very interesting. It, you know, obviously, it, it kind of guides his perspective because Bird's lived a good chunk of his life, as far as he's concerned. He's a little bit older. He's had a lot of experiences, and he's just kind of playing hockey. Whereas Younger's kind of immersed in this martial culture, and this is what he was born to do. This is what he's born to do. Whereas Willard Bird goes over, I have to do this as a job, right? I have to do this as a job. If if I didn't have to do this, I wouldn't be here. Whereas younger is like, I legitimately want to be here because I am, I'm young, young, dumb, and full of cum. Even though he wasn't dumb, he wasn't no, dumb. He was, he's quite an as, intelligent as they man. Say, as they say, young, dumb, and full of cum. Like he was, mm-hmm. he was all out. He was all for it. And the war, despite his enthusiasm for certain aspects of it, and the gallantry of his men, and the fact that 
it is almost like the triumph of the human condition on both sides. He says, you know, he says, what is what does Nietzsche say of fighting men? I'm paraphrasing from the book here, kind of, but he says, your enemy's success is your success also, right? It's all just one. It's the struggle. The struggle is like the glory, right? And he's he's recognizing, and it's true, like warfare is the ultimate test of human endurance, limitations, and it, it is the it is the ultimate battle. Well, it is battle. The ultimate battle is battle, is to actually fight. And if, if they're winning, if you're winning, it doesn't matter. Whoever's winning, it, it it's it's the, it's the hardest point that a man can find himself in, and how he deals with it shows his virtue. It shows his character in every conceivable way. I think there's a particularly German look at that as well, because one interesting thing you see during the Second World War is how the enemy is portrayed. Now, in Nazi propaganda, the Soviets are kind of portrayed as sort of in the same way that we portrayed the Germans as, you know, very demonized. But interestingly enough, in comics, because there were this, basically this Hitler youth magazine that was handed out, showed German soldiers fighting the French or the Dutch or the British. And what's interesting is the Dutch, the British, and the French are always shown as, like, honorable and courageous opponents and i think the reason is and i don't think there's anything that is limited just to the nazis is it was more honorable to beat a brave and competent enemy definitely and i if think that's what nietzsche's getting exactly at. if you're fighting in the words of blackadder a mango wielding rebel <laughs> papua new guinea not as much you can't you can't really you know it can't be like that was a war that was a war. He came at me with a sharpened mango. It was terrifying. Like he just—it's just there's no comparison with the Great War. If you're talking about even some of these previous colonial wars, there's just no there's no comparison. Well, to be fair, certainly some of Britain's colonial opponents were quite fierce fighters in their definitely own way. for sure. But it is a different for sure. Yeah. Well, there's certain wars that are in the public memory, like the Anglo-Zulu Wars, mm-hmm. because of the Sanawana. The Brits actually lost the Anglo-Boer Wars, mm-hmm. right? Because of the you know, uh, Black 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 Week, Maori Wars. That they, they have a certain name yeah, so, called, but yeah, yeah, the Maori Wars, certain but wars in India. You don't well, yeah, just the Indian Mutiny, mm-hmm. just the Indian Mutiny, because you have VCs being awarded and stuff. But you don't hear too much about stuff like the conflicts on the Khyber Pass and the Northwest Frontier or Northeast Frontier, whichever way it's the, the Frontier Afghan Anglo-Afghanistan War. Because they weren't up against the most organized opponents. Mm-hmm. That's just the reality. You don't hear too much about the first opium wars that the British fought. Because, again, they were up against a pretty pathetic <laughs> dopey, <laughs> literally doped up enemy. So you don't hear about that in, in, in China. But you hear about the Boxer Rebellion. Because mm-hmm. in the Boxer Rebellion, they actually surrounded them. And you, you hear about the ones where you actually have clashes. Those are the ones that the stories come out of. Those are the ones, like, obviously the Great War... Why we're covering it is because so many stories have come out of it. It was it was called it's called the Great War for a reason. I think the only reason that the Second War is probably well better known is because it was even easier to get stories out of that war. Mm-hmm. You don't have these secondhand sources and after the fact after action reports. You have like in the moment combat diary records and it was easier to keep those records in the Great War. So yeah, this is these are the ones that that people know, and I think 
Younger is very cognizant of this. He's aware, right? He's part of this war. He's part of this war that will be written about, and and there's some gallantry to fighting. There's there's a de- there's an additional degree of gallantry to fight gallant men, mm-hmm. right? And it's just it goes back to again what what Nietzsche he says is what does Nietzsche say of the fighting man? Your enemy's success is your success also. So just like Nietzsche says, according to Younger, anyways, your enemy's success is your success also. Fighting gallant men is the most gallant thing to do, right? That's just that's just the reality, and he's aware of this. But at the same time. Despite a lot of commentary to the contrary, alliteration, <laughs> but there is still a very dehumanizing aspect to war, and there's there's no dancing around that in Younger's mind. Obviously, he's very affected by a lot of the stuff he's seen, and it's just, he describes it as superhuman indifference. It's, it's just all the Nietzschean, Ubermensch philosophy and stuff. I won't, I won't get too much into that, but it's a very German mindset. Everything, we, we gotta be the supermen. Right, we are the super state, and what war creates is not just the traits of gallantry and honor and loyalty to your comrades and all this and the best traits that can come from humanity in difficult times, but also a superhuman indifference, which is a very interesting way of putting it. And Will Arbor doesn't use that exact phrase, but that's that's the exact. That's the exact thing he comes out of the war with, with a superhuman indifference. The only difference, I think, in conclusion between somebody like Younger and somebody like Will Arbird, obviously, if we take away the fact that they're fighting for different countries, they're different ages, they're immersed in different cultures, is that the positive aspects that come out of the war, the the, the challenges are taken more in stride by somebody like Younger, whereas Will R. Bird focuses more on that superhuman indifference, right? So the, the idea of the, the Ubermensch, the, the Superman, in Younger's mind is more powerful than the superhuman indifference, which is what And We Go On is all about. As, as the title And We Go On implies, we're going to keep we're gonna keep cracking on indifferently. But that being said... Both of the men come to understand both aspects of warfare in that way, the superhuman indifference and the superhuman greatness, because Will Arbert also sees a lot of greatness and heroics and gallantry, but he comes out of the war feeling more of the indifference, whereas definitely Younger comes out of the war feeling a little more of the greatness. But they still come to the same conclusions, just expressed in a different way. At the end of the day, Younger was still a Prussian officer. He moralizes... A lot through war, but but in his own words, we're we're gonna read a final excerpt here, and is basically towards this is kind towards of towards the towards the end of the book, explaining his personal moral justifications for what he's doing, based off of the idea of having to live through, base experiencing superhuman indifference and superhuman virtue and gallantry. The moral justification of this has been much discussed. However, it seems to me that the gratified approval of armchair warriors and journalists is incomprehensible. When thousands of peaceful persons are robbed of their homes, the self-satisfaction of power may at least keep silence. As for the necessity, I have, of course, as a Prussian officer, no doubt whatever. War means the destruction of the enemy without scruple and by any means. War is the harshest of all trades, and the masters of it can only entertain humane feelings as long as they do no harm. 
It makes no difference that these operations, which the situation demanded, were not very pretty. So, it's a complex take. It is indeed. It's complex. It's it's in your face, just like Will Arbert's own very nuanced, complex take on the war. In many ways, both of these guys were dispelling a lot of myths that people have about the war. How, not only the, on the technical side of how people died and how they fought, but also from a philosophical perspective what the war meant to them. As not only a job, but a surreal state of being that men or women through history have found themselves in. Right, that that human beings have found themselves in this this very very uh, surreal situation. We're not going to read the actual ending ending of this book because it's you just got to get the book. We're we're yeah. skimming over it. And same deal with Amy Goan. We did not read you the ending. You have to read those for yourself. Those they're both, as we discussed, very powerful in their own way. We highly recommend both of them. Uh, I think you got to plug your your translation version here. The yes. one we have of this. This is this was an excellent translation. This guy's the book that we have been reading today is the original 1929 translation of The Storm of Steel, and this one is published by Mystery Grove Publishing Co. They are an up and coming publisher who publishes lots of sort of mostly military yeah uh, memoirs that have been lost to print. We'll be definitely looking at some other of their books on this podcast. They've got some really great stuff coming out. This is, I think this is actually only their first year in business, but they've had an absolutely fantastic first year. And yeah, their name is Mystery Grove Publishing, and they're both on Twitter and on Amazon. At Mystery Grove. At Mystery Grove. We don't have a partnership or anything with yeah, them. We want to. We're just plugging them. We're just plugging them because they do. They make good books. Yeah, Stor- the Storm of Steel. This the 1929 version is kind of a lost classic too. So it is. Yeah. So it's, same with and we go on because that's the original 1930 with the forward. That's kind of lost classic. What what publisher is that? I think that's University of Toronto Press. This is. It is another lost classic too. Mac- McGill Queens. McGill Queens University Press. Press. So. They're both lost classics, and we go on McGill's Queen's University Press, A Memoir of the Great War, and we go on, or The Storm of Steel, 1929 translation by Mystery Grove Publishing. They were both published a year apart, so these guys are kind of in the same headspace as far as where where they've gotten in their lives after the war. The most common copy of Storm of Steel you'll find, which is the Penguin House translation is a later one it's not bad i've read that one but this is by far a superior yeah. text it's the this is the original it's the, original. It's the essence yeah. and same with the uh mcgill the whatever the yeah we go on version what was that publishing house again uh mcgill queen's university yeah, maybe yes. they don't need to be published because people know mcgill mcgill's and queen's university that's for our american listeners that's like the ivy league of canada mm-hmm. right so mcgill's and queen's university press they did publish it after it had been out of print for a while. I remember I read And We Go On way back in high school. That was my first introduction to it. Uh, I think this would have been 2010, maybe? And the copy I had was an original, like, 1930. Like, the original 1930, and I, I just read this copy again, and it's, like, almost... It's, it's identical. There was no... Nothing inferior about this version. It was... It's, it's very, very true to the original in terms of how it's been edited. I think it has a modern forward now. That's, yeah, that's modern the only, that's the only thing forward that's and afterward. 
Yeah, there's no. I think the afterword is Will Arbird, if I remember correctly. No, it's uh, they're it, both by David Williams. Okay, okay. So the so it is it's both mo- it's a it's a modern forward and afterward. Ernst Younger is obviously a mortar the actual forward that he wrote, and he's writing it in 1929. So he's like, I'm still corresponding with British officers, and it's like, yeah, everybody's dead now. So this is obviously not not modern by any stretch of the imagination, but. That being said, they're both excellent reads. If you can get them, I think you you can hopefully get them both on Amazon. I almost guarantee you're going to read these in a very, very short span of time. They're quick. They're relatively quick reads, the both of them. The only warning is, again, Younger's very, very meticulous on the details. You might get lost in them. And Will Our Bird is not meticulous on the details. Yeah, his so book you tends might, to blend it might, together. It might, it might blend in together. That being said... We've talked a lot about military books. Let's talk about militaria. Militaria. Military clothing, shirts, pants, tactical gear, Rhodesian breaststroke. All cool stuff. There's a certain store I know of, and you might know of too, Bindu. Are you thinking about the store I'm thinking about? I think it's Fire Fox Ventures or something. We're going to get sued. We're going to get sued now for copyright. It's actually called Fire Force Ventures. It's a little website, www.fireforceventures.com, and it's an e-store, not an e-girl, an e-store, and, or not e-sports, not e-girl, e-store, online store where we sell, well, I sell, not you, I, with this store, sell military clothing, memorabilia, flags, flags of all nations, good and bad, don't care, you can buy the flags, you can burn them, eat them, fly them proudly, do whatever you want, I don't care, clothing, from as far away as East Germany, the Czech Republic, Britain, and as close as the United States and Canada. So all over the world, all kinds of military, uh, lots of cool stuff there. And of course, the famous Rhodesian brushstroke that put them on the map. And the radar of every Western security agency ever, because they're <laughs> evil. So if you like supporting evil, crazy companies, like my personal company, Check out www.fireforceventures.com. Of course, this podcast is also hosted exclusively on fireforceventures.com. It is also hosted by our pals over at Commando Blog, K O M M A N D O B L O G.com. Commando Blog.com has excellent articles on all things guns, lifestyles, gear, and all the rest. Everything associated with that good stuff, and some of the stuff we even talked about today. Sometimes comes out on Commando Blog, always looking for contributors and supporters. They've got an excellent Twitch stream that comes every now and again. You should definitely check out excellent interviews and way better podcasts than ours hosted there. So definitely check out CommandoBlog.com, excellent website and great friends of ours. We are hosted there as well. So, Mr. Bindu, <laughs> any, any closing thoughts on, on this? You have to get the book, guys. Yeah, it's a fantastic yeah. book. Uh, Ernest Jünger is one Ernest. of the more Ernest. Oh, you did it again. One of the more exceptional fellows, I guess, of modern history. Certainly one of the more exceptional writers and soldiers. And he's not a Nazi. No, he is not a Nazi. Reading Nazi books on our podcast. Yeah, no, he is. He is though quite an interesting perspective to look at historically. He is Definitely. the emphasis, uh, the the epitome of the Deutsch Soldat, the German soldier, and bloody excellent. And uh, obviously, a special thanks to all those who fought for what they believed was right 
and still gave us, still took the opportunity to give us these stories because they teach us a lot about the human condition, the absolute worst conditions that human beings can survive, obviously, to the family and, and, and the spirits of Ernst Younger and Will Arbird, these two gentlemen. They lived through a lot, and the fact that they very graciously, in their latter years, shared their stories, for the, for the last decades of their life, shared their stories, is immeasurably positive for the hundreds of generations and, and maybe thousands of years to come. These are these are timeless pieces of literature. So many thanks to them and to those that fought honorably despite the circumstances they were put in, regardless of whether they were on the Entente powers or the Central powers. All of those millions of men that often walked into foreign lands and never came home again and are buried in foreign graves. A great thanks to them and their families and all the sufferings they went through to the wounded that came home, that were maimed and blind and all the re- blinded by the gas and all the rest. Many thanks to them. They're kind of the reason that we have our modern world and we can, we can do podcasts like this. So grab a chibouli, pull up, and enjoy some stories with us. Cheers, guys.